Welcome to MedHeads, the weekly show that brings a biopsychosocial focus to issues of the day, along with special guests who will showcase their expertise and enthusiasm about their field of practice. Your host, Dr. Fergal Armstrong. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong, and welcome to this episode of MedHeads. And today we have Marie Eismer, mental health social worker. Hello, Marie. Can you hear me? Can you see me? Hello. Certainly can. How are you today? I'm well. And yourself? No, very good. Very good. So the last time we talked, we were, were touching about your views on alcohol and other drugs and your therapeutic engagement and your style. So to continue from that, I just wanted to, to ask you, first of all, what role do you see families having in, uh, in the management of a patient with alcohol and other drugs? They have um, an integral role. Um, often when I'm working with clients, I tend to go, um, like whenever I'm doing family, family work, I'm always thinking, even if I've only got one client in front of me, mm. I'm thinking three generations ahead of sort of, of what's gone on before I actually sorry, work with a client. So... What we often find out is when we track the story, most people who, it's been my clinical experience and I'd love to know if this has been yours too, Fergal, but very seldom is it the client who's actually using this substance who actually seeks out help first. My experience has usually been that it's a family member who's tearing their hair out, it's the spouse, it's the, um, you know, it's, it's certainly not the client themselves. Can you relate to that? Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's usually a distraught wife or mother. Um, that, that's what I can remember. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the other thing is that usually, um, you know, and, and I was only just doing some work on this yesterday, is, you know, when we look at even our um, people who are sort of in and out of our mental health systems, what we often find is that the issue of substances is in there, but it's very seldom the identified issue. It's, um, you know, like even child child youth mental health services, um, it's usually the, the squeaky wheel, the presenting um, person is often never the one who's really got the issue. It's just the one who is usually the scapegoat in the family who highlights that something's completely skewy with the family. So... Just let me reflect back. Are you saying then that a patient with uh, alcohol and substance use disorders is actually a, a, a harbinger of a greater issue in the family? Is it possible to have an isolated substance use disorder within a family? No, because anyone else who's around that is impacted. Um, you know, I was only working with this um, not that long ago where, okay, so if I break down it in a, in a, in a clinical example, say for argument's sake, you've got a tween girl who, um, whose parents, whose mum, say, is really kind of an anxious, very anxious person. Say the father is um, drinking heavily. The daughter in some ways, say for argument's sake, the father's got a lot of trust issues, doesn't really know how to cope. The moment she starts saying, look, I want to go and have a sleepover at my friend's place, his anxiety starts going up. He starts drinking more. The wife doesn't like how much the husband starts drinking. And then the tween will then sometimes go, oh, 
no, this is destabilising everything. I feel bad for mum. Mum's not coping. Dad's going to start drinking more. So you can see how even in the individuation process for that child, how things get stifled. So I've never in my clinical experience ever seen somebody who has a substance abuse issue and not have it impact on the remaining or other subsequent members of the family. Oh, yeah. I, I wasn't suggesting that. I was asking you to clarify the point because what you said originally made me think was that that there's no such thing as a substance a use disorder de novo. There's always some blame, fault on the rest of the family. Is that what you're saying? No. No. One, what, some of the things that have usually got um, caught up is... Um, boundaries are often a big issue for people people assuming responsibility for other people um there's a covert there's a, a secrecy um a legacy of secrecy that tends to go on with substance abuse issues um i've had many times where i've worked with clients only when i've actually rang the fat like the, the the mothers they will actually then say oh no um my daughter hasn't told you that my husband's actually got a drinking problem um so there seems to be this secrecy in um, not sharing actually really what's going on, but it's it's part of the bigger the bigger issue. All right, all right. So is it fair to say then, in, in terms of the biblical quotation, the sins of the father are visited upon the sons, nay, onto the seventh generation? Is is that true? Like for instance, I, I'm I'm Irish, and you know, there's this kind of a proto, there's a, a stereotypical view that alcoholism just runs down the male line. Is that, do you think that's true? No, because I think, well, I, I remember a classic example and it was given to me, um, it was actually before I had a career change and I worked in pharmacy and the pharmacist actually said to me, he gave the example of two, of, a, of two boys who were, say, 18 months apart. Um, now, the father had been in and out of jail, um, massive history of substance abuse issues and and. and you know, criminal goings-on, and the two sons were interviewed. Now, one son went down exactly the same road as his father and mm. the other son did the complete opposite. <clears throat> and when the two boys were then put together and said, what what led to you choosing the the, the lines that you took in your world and, and the lifestyles you created, they both said, with a father, a father like mine, what do you expect? Yes. So interpretation so and difference? meaning... Well, obviously someone, you know, and, and this is where the it's a, I, I, it bewilders me because we like to sit there and think that there are certain things that make certain situations happen, but then we get these examples where somebody rebels or somebody doesn't take on the, the script, somebody makes a different choice. And, you know, where three children in a family, you know, each and every one of them adapts differently. Um, and takes on a different, um, you know, takes on a different role in the actual dimensions within the family. So, yeah. Do you think it could be genetic? I mean, there are there are uh, genetic uh, differences between uh, children that that can explain the drug liking phenomenon, the, yes. the initial impulsivity to drug taking. Absolutely. Um, so in the example that you gave, I presume the children were not twins. They were, they were non-twin children of this alcoholic father. Absolutely. There was an 18-month age gap. Yeah. But, I mean, I've seen this too where I know uh, people are being adopted um, mm. and then when they've actually met their biological families, 
their parents have had a major drinking problem or a, a major substance yeah. abuse issue. So, I mean, there is genetic, there's no two ways about it. There is genetic variables in there, totally. So then does go back to the sins of the father are visited upon the sons. I mean, that is alluding to a genetic well, uh, predisposition, I, I isn't think it? There's, I, I think there's a predisposition, but I don't always think it, it actually means that somebody will, will, there might be a vulnerability to it, but I don't think it actually always becomes the, the catalyst of someone actually using does yeah. it, or, or, yes. or falling. Or, so I, I mean, I know other people who have, you know, they've had um, parents who have had substance abuse issues, but they've had a food addiction. Yes. So predisposition does not inevitably mean the development of a substance use disorder. It is no. a vulnerability. So I Correct. suppose one could ask the question, having a vulnerability is half the journey. So what, in your view, makes one cross the line into frank uh, substance use disorder? From my clinical experience, it's been things like um, low self-esteem. It's been, um, you know, having capacity. I think one of the things that we, when we peel things back when it comes to families is, say for argument's sake, some parents don't know how to model emotional attunement like a child you know might might have a, a meltdown or has a has a, a an uproar of behaviors or something and the parent misattributes um oh you just need to have a little sleep when in fact maybe the child is actually ropeable and angry so i think if we sometimes peel things back what we often find is that a, a child hasn't been able to have a complete understanding of emotion and what they're feeling and um, a lot of call like emotional repertoire or emotional um, labeling of exactly what they're experiencing. So it's like they learn to distrust their own perceptions or their own judgments um, or they misattribute, you know, something going on with the parent and then they think that's something to do with them. I mean, we know that core schemas and um, you know, those core beliefs are often, you know, already starting to form between the ages of five to eight in children. Um, and we know that unconsciously um, they will take on things when they didn't have an adult brain to be able to rationalise that. And I think those core beliefs become formed and then they they play out through the course of life. And if a parent isn't... Um, possibly giving the news of difference to say, hey, you know, I know that's how you're seeing things, but that's actually not how it, how it is. The child just goes off to conclude, well, that's exactly how it is. That must be true. You know, it's what kind of like the glasses that? that people, it's like the glasses that people then see the world through. They become the lens that people then make sense of their world. And if it's, if it's, if it's actually how they really truly do believe it to be, then they will often then bring people into their world that will step into the role that will either confirm that belief or, um, or the the news of it being not accurate in their sphere becomes too, too too different, and then then they dispel it, and then they'll just they'll just seek people to reenact or refamiliarize what's familiar to them. Does that make sense? Are you saying then that addiction, however one chooses to define it, is fundamentally uh, developed in childhood? No, I think if we don't understand things like self-esteem, so when we look at things like in a in a family, what will often happen is, you know, say you've got you've got two parents who are one's got an addiction, one hasn't, but the mother might not bring it up. They don't they they don't want to shake the cage. They don't want to you know. Sometimes, if you really think about substance use, it's the biggest way of avoiding emotional intimacy within a relationship. 
really, when you think about it. If a husband or a, a wife needs to constantly go off and become, you know, obliterated as far as in substances, then that leaves, you know, there's a thing that Bowen talks about, which is he refers to as differentiation of self. And essentially what that means is that when we attract a partner, we are attracting somebody who has an equal capacity for emotional um, attunement or emotional development. And right. you, you can understand why it wouldn't work. If somebody's really, really emotionally got it together and, you know, perhaps has a really good use of language and then you've got somebody who doesn't, you know, doesn't even know what they think or feel or anything like that, you could see how a relationship like that won't go a huge distance. Right. But what's that got to do with us choosing partners who have equal capacity for emotional attunement? Because if someone can't get that attunement they will seek it somewhere else now whether that be in an affair whether that be in a substance whether that be they'll they'll do anything like okay so for argument's sake I was having a discussion with a, a friend yesterday and she was saying to me that her parents just said look I just want you to go and find somebody just somebody who looks like they might be really financial but when we peel that back it's because the family didn't have any capacity for emotional connection so the parents were just like saying look as long as this person ticks these criteria Yes, they're financial. Yes, they look like they, um, they've they got a house, they're stable. That was in some way the modelling that this girl believed to take on. So, of course, she goes off and then does this, finds a partner who's basically on the spectrum, and guess what? It doesn't work because right. it wasn't really... How into addiction? Because it's like sometimes if... if it, okay, so this person doesn't go and use substances, but if she was still caught up with the belief that her family have said to her you know, this is what it means, you just keep doing what you're doing and she doesn't have enough courage in, in herself to say, I'm not going to do this, this isn't right. We can see how, you know, somebody like that might start looking at having a wine at five o'clock. You know, we pay a really heavy price when we go up against the vow that we've made in our families and sometimes that vow um, disrupts our central nervous system so that in an effort of somehow trying to calm ourselves or... Um, try to to bolster the unpleasant feelings people can be vulnerable to using substances to change an emotional state so what you're saying then is that our issues within our family create a a dysphoria and that dysphoria drives us to drink and drugs Yes, and I think I've seen this happen many, many times where, like, and I think I alluded to this in perhaps one of our other talks, is, you know, where, you know, I've seen this with families who have got very, very strong religious beliefs, but their son is realising that he's actually not in the, he's not in the right gender. Um, and to have to go up against the family to be able to say, look, my, his real sense of self was I have to become... I have, to, I have to live in the trueness of me believing I'm actually female. But mm. to go up against the family and actually say, look, the son that you thought I was is actually, I'm not the son that you really want me to be. I'm actually, I'm actually female. I identify as female. He's stuck with this horrible quandary of I'm going to be abandoned by my tribe because to do this and to really step into, to step into his authentic, authentic self will mean He's then got to potentially sit with disapproval, abandonment, and humans, abandonment is a massive thing that we have struggled with since we were born. So why, I mean, I, I'm, I love the concept of abandonment as, as, as causing unhappiness and, and addiction. 
for you, why is abandonment so important uh, for for your patients? Oh, because essentially abandonment is, you know, that is worse than death. <laughs> you know, when we're you see, when we're sorry, what were you going to say? Sorry to interrupt, right? But this. For me, you've just used the word death, but you know, when, when we think of ourselves as, as ancient man, Stone Age man, we were all happy around a campfire, part of the group, and the campfire was able to give us the protection that we needed from the big bad world outside. The minute we become ostracized or abandoned and we have to survive in the jungle on our own, we are sentenced to death. Correct. Because ancient man could not have survived without being part of a tribe. Absolutely. So for me, abandonment is an existential death sentence. Absolutely. And and no one knows how, as I, and I touched on this last time, is, you know, when it comes to self-soothing, who teaches us how to self-soothe? Our caregivers. You know, and I think you bring up a beautiful point, and that is that, you know, years ago we grew up with tribe, we grew up with community, yeah. you know, and I don't want to, you know, go down the road of stereotypical imagery that the man's out there with, you know, spears and hunting and gathering, but essentially they would. That would be guys the women would off, were the gathering. Women would be the gathering. The guys would go off and do the hunting and have, yes. their, have their own time, but there would be this also connection in, um, you know, sometimes they would have their conversations about, you know, where buffaloes might be or where, you know, um, a meat source would be and there would be some togetherness you know, whether it be, you know, um, sharpening spears, but guys would be together. Yes. Um, but then they would go off and they would sort of, you know, um, disperse and do what they needed to do. Women would be sitting around, you know, perhaps collecting berries. There was many, many eyes upon children when we were growing up. It wasn't yes. just the job of our mum or our dad. Yes. So we got to know a sense of greater safety because there was this, um, there was this kind of holding pattern that existed with many other women or many other people with you know um, within that tribe. So even if mum or dad was a bit shirty with us or whatever, there was somebody else who would still be in that space that says, you know what, you're actually okay. Um, I see you. You you know there was that capacity for other maternal experiences there, even if perhaps the person who birthed us wasn't capable or nurturing experiences. Absol yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The person who birthed us may not have the capacity to nurture. And we see this, yeah. you know, how often, I mean, I know I see it in my work with, you know, with parents who have got with a, a young person who might have a, a narcissistic mother or um, a narcissistic father um, who actually doesn't have the capacity to, you know, um, to have that felt sense of, you know, you are loved unconditionally, you matter. And in the eyes of the child, I exist and, and I'm, I'm, fundamentally despite all my flaws I'm actually lovable so you know we see that if somebody comes from the lens of not feeling okay and they're unloved or they've got those other core beliefs and essentially they're the breeding grounds for poor self-esteem mm. when we track things intergenerationally what will often happen is even if somebody chooses not to go down the road of perhaps using substances themselves if their role within the family has been the caregiver, the rescuer, um, the um, the placator, they will then actually be at greater risk of potentially finding somebody who actually has a substance abuse issue. So what you're saying is that, that someone who's, whose identity is dependent on them being a caregiver or a placator and nurturer, they will then 
when they go out into the big bad world, they will then choose someone that they still have to nurture, protect, and placate. That's exactly. Called, yeah, absolutely. I mean, isn't, isn't that called the Mary Magdalene syndrome? Absolutely. And people who have got, um, you know, people who are codependent or, an, you know, enablers in situations, hmm. sometimes actually their sense of self only comes to them because of the martyr role that they've got with somebody else, but they don't realise it. That's that's the that's the um, that's the sad thing. So when we do a genogram as a family, as someone who's trained in family therapy, we're looking for that because what you will always see. Did you you would have studied the the Cartman drama triangle? Do you remember that drama no. triangle with the? Tell oh, me. you'd know it. You'd know it. I'm sure. Where you know you've got the victim, you've got the rescuer, and you've got the persecutor. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, forgive me, but I forgot the eponym. <laughs> well, it goes under. Look, it goes under different titles, but essentially, you know, and and we know, you know, the example I give when it comes to this is, you know, the person who's the victim. So the example um, might be, you know, Fred goes to the pub and is is debriefing to Phil because um, Fred's been turfed out of his house because his wife got that jacked off of him being drunk again, um, and she's basically said, look you know, scram, I've had enough. So Fred's in there having a, having a you know, a, a, a debrief <laughs> to, yes. to Phil who says, oh, mate, that's really bad news. How about you come back and uh, come back to my place and we'll make sure that you're not stuck out under a park bench. You sleep on my couch. We'll sort this out. We'll get a housing service involved, blah, blah, blah. But then what ends up happening is Fred doesn't really want to stop drinking at all. So now what happens is Fred just decides to start drinking on Phil's couch. And now all of a sudden Phil's in the doghouse because his relationship is the, you know, the partner in, that he's got is going, listen, you know, this benevolence of having Fred on our couch is becoming a problem. I couldn't even sit down and watch my, watch my TV the other day because Fred was there. Or Fred rocked in at, you know, 12 o'clock midnight, blind drunk, you know, stumbling and falling over. And now all of a sudden... Um, Phil has to raise the issue. How so Phil to... becomes the persecutor, whereas previously he was the rescuer. Yeah, and also, but everyone moves around the triangle. So um, oh. what happens is Fred then turns around and goes, you know, when so when Phil has to have the topic, the, brings up the topic of conversation, saying to Fred, you know, listen, you're kind of extending your goodwill, um, you're kind of exploiting the situation. Now I think you really need to consider moving out. You haven't done a single thing like you suggested that you would or that he that really Phil wanted to have happen. Um, Fred turns around and goes, yeah, well, I never asked for your help. You know, um, I, I didn't actually ask for your help. You 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 just chose to do that for me. And then yeah. Phil feels, um, you know, then Phil has now Phil's actually become the victim because now Phil can't get Fred off the couch. So uh, and then all of a sudden and Hanny can also swing to being a persecutor such as you ungrateful dog. Look what I went and did for you. So you can see how the whole triangle, you know, people move around. The, the, how the is dynamic. that relevant to this discussion? Well, it's in another way. When, the, when a person is a placator or when a person is the, when a person has had their identity shrouded in being the people pleaser, the fixer, the carer, um, they will unconsciously, be at risk of enacting that out further in the partner that they mm. pick. And then the cycle continues. So when we track this in three genera in three generations, you'll often see that this is a pattern. So even if they choose not to become the drug uh, person who actually uses substances themselves, 
their identity is only made in connection to the substance in some way. Mm. So they're vulnerable. Yeah. So to what extent does our discussion uh, relate to the following concept that um, addiction is the third person in a relationship? Oh, big time. You know, <laughs> um, sometimes, you know, and as I said, if we take it back to the work of Bowen, you know, as I said, talking around our capacity to be able to sit with, um, you know, a, a level of um, emotional distress and how we can actually you know, bring up touchy subjects um, and how we can actually hold our own in response to, you know, perhaps differences of, of opinion. So, you know, a lot of relationships have this thing around, you know, it's kind of reciprocal. So if if a partner thinks that somebody's substance use, substance use is getting a little bit precarious or perhaps, you know, you know, sometimes people say, look, I'm going to put $70, $70 aside for um, your alcohol for the week as part of the, the budget. But say that person then comes in seeking counselling because now all of a sudden the partner's now starting to blow $80, $90, $100. Um, you know, that becomes like this kind of a, a vow in the relationship has now become kind of compromised or, or um, violated in some way. So somebody will then come and say to me, look, you know, I'm not happy. Um, Fred's now starting to drink more than we actually agreed. Um, and so that person now starts to feel that, they're losing either their perception of control about how much that person's drinking and that in some ways it now starts to flip from he's just having a couple of drinks to now he's escaping. You know, I'll never forget one day um, I'd worked with this woman for a long time and her partner had a major cannabis problem and she, they actually ended up breaking up. They The relationship went through its you know, through its course and about seven years after the relationship ended, they ended up having still, they still remained friends despite everything. But she actually heard something that was so profound. He actually said they, they had to go on a big trip. They ended up doing a, a big travel to, I think it was Western Australia. So you could appreciate there was him in the car, there was her in the car, and then there was the bong. And, um, you know, of course he was continually stoned. But then by the time you know, after seven years of this relationship and it finally ending, he actually got straight and he actually said to her, you know, I never realised how lonely you actually must have been in that relationship all this time. Mm -hmm. And for her, she thought, wow. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it is like a third person in the relationship. You know, somebody wants to, you know, sit there and be affectionate and that person is sitting out there having drinks or too busy preoccupied in scoring or who's just gone to jail or who's been done by the police the night before. Anything that triangulate, you know, when we talk about triangulation, so in a healthy relationship, in a dyadic relationship, we've got person A and person B. But when triangulation occurs, instead of what's been sorted out between person A and person B, it's like something now named C comes into it. And that C could be anything from a person taking up golf and becoming obsessed about it or see becoming, as I said, a substance abuse. But essentially what's happening is it's taking away the energy that would otherwise be available to person A and person B in the dyadic relationship. Does that kind so of make sense? That makes perfect sense, Marie. We're going to have to uh, close this episode, Don, but I really hope that you'd agree to talk more upon this subject and share with us your wisdom in, in a later episode. Thanks for having me. Bye. 
Thank you for watching this episode of MedHeads. My name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong, and I hope you all join us again soon. Thank you.